Hello, welcome to The Wire Podcast. I am your host, Ryan McCreary, and to kick today's episode off, I am going to be discussing the Wanda Franco situation. Now, I do want to warn you, this is a this involves some pretty deep stuff involving minors, so if you can't handle that or don't just don't want to listen to it, I would recommend skipping that topic um, because it's pretty upsetting, um, and what, what Franco is accused of doing is disgusting so just want to put that out there warning you uh the listeners that if you don't want to hear about what he's done you are more than welcome to skip that topic and then after that i want to talk about um some rookie quarterbacks in the nfl there are three rookie quarterbacks that were selected in this year's draft who have been named starters for their respective teams i'm going to be talking about whether or not that was the right decision for their teams to make and then i want to talk about whether or not it's smart for NFL teams to start their rookies uh, right off the bat or not. Um, I think that's a pretty interesting conversation. So that'll be the, the second topic we talk about. And then lastly, to close out this podcast, I want to rank the top five playmakers in the NBA. I wrote an article the other day about this. So I want to go over my rankings and just talk about some of the best playmakers in the NBA. That's what we have on tap for today's episode. I hope you enjoy and let's get into it. All right, unfortunately, I have to start off by talking about the Wander Franco situation. So, if you don't know who Wander Franco is, Franco is a 22-year-old shortstop for the Tampa Bay Rays. He is legitimately one of the best players in Major League Baseball, and last week, he there were rumors started on social media that he was having a, or at least had, I guess I should say, a relationship with a minor, and specifically a 14-year-old girl. Um, Obviously, that sucks, and that is absolutely disgusting, Um, and it's crazy because you don't hear stuff like this happen really ever. Like, uh, you you rarely, like, you never see a big-time athlete like this get accused of something that is so disgusting. Um, and I want to pull up an article from Sports Illustrated that kind of gives us um, some details about it. Um, so I'll go ahead and read, read, um, read a little bit from this article. And this was written by Mike McDaniel. Shout out to you, Mike, for writing this. So the, the article is titled, Wanda Franco, Unlikely to Return to MLB Amid Investigation Per Report. Um, it says, to start off, it says, quote, Ray Shor- uh, Star Shortstop Wanda Franco is under investigation in, in the Dominican Republic for an alleged relationship with a minor. The investigation began earlier this week. That's that. That's last week um, as at the time that you are listening to this. Following social media rumors surrounding the shortstop that alleged that Franco was engaging in an inappropriate relationship with a minor, MLB subsequently opened its own investigation into the allegations on Sunday. 
So there were if you if you are on social media, if you're not chronically on online like I am, there were pictures going around. I don't know if they originated on Instagram or Snapchat. I saw them on Twitter, and it looked like the pictures were um, originally published or published or posted on Instagram, and they were of Franco and this really young girl. Um, there were rumors that she was 14 years old, I don't know if that's true or not, but she definitely looked pretty young, um, and the, and the pictures were pretty gross, um, they weren't graphic or anything, but, um, they were definitely, like, so it was definitely some PDA involved in the pictures, and it was obviously disgusting, if she is in fact a minor, um, and I'll go ahead and read more of the article, um, continuing, continuing, it says, quote, now, just days into the investigation, a new report casts doubt on the future of Franco's baseball career. On Tuesday morning, baseball insider Hector Gomez reported that a source close to the matter says it is very unlikely that Wonder Franco will play in MLB again, judging by the results of the investigations that are currently being carried out, which directly commit him to the accusations against him, end quote. So it sounds like Franco um, is, or that the accusations um, that were made about him being in this alleged relationship with a minor are true, um, or at least this report um, makes it sound like that's that's the case. Um, and if so, that is just gross, and Wanda Franco should not be allowed to play baseball ever again. That's absolutely disgusting, and we should have no... Um, like, we should not allow pedophiles to be playing in Major League Baseball. That's gross. That's disgusting. Um, it is sad, though, um, for everyone involved. I mean, it, it's sad to see such a great baseball player, um, do something like this. Um, Wander Franco was having an excellent season, um, and to see a player like that waste their career and just basically throw their career away, uh, doing something like this is awful. It's terrible. Um, it, it, it's horrendous. And I feel terrible for the girl. And there were rumors that there was even a second minor that he was in a relationship with. Um, and if that's true, that, that makes this whole situation even, even more disgusting. Because that means he is possibly a serial pedophile. I mean, I don't even know what it takes to be a serial pedophile, um, but the fact that he was possibly in a relationship with one minor is gross. The fact that he was possibly in a, in a relationship with a second minor is just even more disgusting. All around, this situation is just, it's terrible, um, and I feel awful for the little girl. Um, I don't know if her identity has been released even if it has, I'm not going to share it um, because that's just not fair to her. Obviously, this was not a consensual relationship. It's not possible for a minor to consent to a relationship like this. Um, and when she gets older, it's not fair to her uh, for her to have her identity um, put out like this in this manner, um, considering the situation. So, yeah, it's terrible for the girl. Her, she is probably going to be scarred for life. Um, and it's just gross for someone in a position of power like this, uh, to abuse their power, um, like this, um, and to treat a young girl like this. That young girl is never going to be the same. 
um, and her life is forever changed. And she is scarred for life because of Franco. Um, now, I will say allegedly for the purpose of, you know, I don't want to get <laughs> sued for slandering him. Um, so I will say that this is all alleged. These are just allegations. The investigation is not complete. So I don't want to just, you know, say that Franco is guilty when he hasn't been found guilty yet. Obviously, in the United States, you are innocent until proven guilty. Um, but um, I will repeat that based on this report that I read uh, to, start, to start off this episode, it does appear that Wanda Franco is guilty of these accusations. Um, and that sucks. That sucks for everyone involved. Um, and stuff like this is disgusting. And I hate it. But yeah, that's the Wanda Franco situation. Um, that's everything that's happened. Um, that's what it involves. Um, and I'm sorry for everyone who had to listen to that and hear about what Wanda Franco allegedly did. But yeah, that's everything Everything that happened last week involving Wanda Franco um, and his legal issues um, involving him and a minor. And now let's move on to our second topic. But before I do that, I'm going to take a little bit of a break and I will see y'all in a second. All right, I am back and now we can talk about some rookie quarterbacks. So this year in the 2023 NFL Draft, there were three uh, quarterbacks selected in the first round. That's Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, and Anthony Richardson. And all three of these players have been named Week 1 starters by their respective teams. Bryce Young is going to be the starter for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, CJ Stroud is going to be the Week 1 starter for the Houston Texans. And Anthony Richardson is going to be the Week 1 starter for the Indianapolis Colts. And this leads to a, a big question. Should these players, should these rookie quarterbacks be starting week one? And then this leads to a, an even bigger question. Should rookie quarterbacks start week one? Like in general, in general, is it a good idea for teams to start their rookie quarterbacks right off the bat? Now, with these players, um, I think it is smart that their teams are starting them. I think all three players should be starting. And honestly, I, I, I might even go on a limb. I might, I might even go out on a limb and say that the Titans should start Will Levis. Obviously, they're going to be starting Ryan Tannehill, I think. Um, I'm not, I don't, I don't think that they were having a QB battle, uh, for their Q, for their starting quarterback spot. Um, but considering that Ryan Tannehill is aging, um, and that Will Levis is, um, an older prospect or, or was an older prospect coming out, um, I would, if I were them, I would consider giving him a chance to start early on, um, even if it isn't week one. Um, that's just my two cents. Obviously, they know what's best. They were a good team, um, but like the first half of the year last year. Uh, and Ryan Tannehill isn't a terrible quarterback, so we'll see. Um, but yeah, in the case of Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, and Anthony Richardson, I do think it is a great. I think it's like, extremely smart that um, a smart decision to start all of them week one, especially with Bryce Young and CJ Stroud. Both of those guys are, I think, 21, maybe 22 years old now. Um, I know both of them were 21 years old the day of the draft, um, and they were really good prospects coming out. I thought both of those guys were high-level prospects. 
Um, and both of them were really skilled passers. And I think both of them um, showed that they had the skills to be, you know, really good, um, not just, you know, later on, but even right away. Like, I think both of those guys um, were, were developed enough in college to start right away. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think. I think, I think most people felt like those guys um, were ready to, to come in and start day one. Anthony Richardson is different. He he's he's different though, cause he he was a lot more raw as a passer than those guys. Um, and I've talked a lot on this podcast about how I think that Anthony Richardson isn't quite as raw as a lot of people think. Um, but he definitely was more raw as a passer coming out of college than Bryce Young and T.J. Stroud. And so a lot of people have said that he that the Colts should not have start should not start him week one. And should allow him to to stay on the bench a little bit, and maybe start later in the season, or maybe even just sit sit out the entirety of his rookie season. Um, in my opinion, I think it's great that he's starting week one. I think that in general, rookie quarterbacks should start um, early on or as early as humanly possible. I think that the best for that you know. It, developing is going to be easiest um, when they have in-game reps. And the, and the more in-game reps they get, um, the more you'll learn about them, the more they'll develop. Um, and that's just my opinion. Maybe maybe some coaches would disagree with that, uh, but that is my opinion. So you, you can just take that with a grain of rice, with a, with a grain of salt. Grain of rice? What am I saying? Grain of salt? Um, but yeah, I think it's great that all three of these guys are starting week one. Um, I think Bryce Young and CJ Stroud, they'll be fine. Um, although they aren't in like perfect situations for a rookie, um, they're good enough to, to be fine. They may, they may have some struggles and they may struggle more than people kind of expected them to based on their college tape. Um, I, I think they'll be fine, um, moving forward. And if they're bad, they're, they were going to be bad. Like It didn't matter if they started week one or not. If those guys are bad, that's probably what the outcome was going to be no matter when they started. Now for Anthony Richardson, um, I'm glad he's starting early. I think he can be better right off the bat than people think um, because he's such a good runner and his pocket presence is so good. Um, and, and he's just a ridiculous athlete most both in terms of his arm strength and his mobility. I think all of that, you know, can allow him to be successful um, to some degree as a rookie. There are are going to be some growing pains with him, definitely. Like, he is going to make some really bad throws at times. We've already seen him do that in the preseason. He had one interception versus the Bills. That was just absolutely awful. And I think that he's going to have moments like that as a rookie. But I also think we're going to see him make a lot of high-level plays as a runner. Um, and I think because of his rushing upside, um, he can can be extremely productive as a runner. Um, and honestly, I think he can be one of the more productive runner or one of the more productive rushing quarterbacks in the entire league as a rookie. He's that good as a runner. Um, and I think that the Colts' run game specifically will be really, really good next year because they have Anthony Richardson, they have Jonathan Taylor, and they have a talented offensive line. So those are my thoughts on those guys starting. 
Um, now we can go into more of the, you know, bigger conversation uh, surrounding um, whether or not co- rookie quarterbacks should start right away in general, whether or not that is good practice. Um, and I'm going to pull up this article from The Ringer, which was written in 2021, around about two years ago, and it was written by Roger Sherman. And the title of this article says, What the last 20 years teach us about how rookie quarterback seasons predict future success. And what Roger Sherman did is that he analyzed, let me scroll down a little bit. Um, So he, let's see, he examined the careers of all 60 quarterbacks taken in the first round between 2000 and 2020. And he sorted the quarterbacks into five five categories. That's week one starters, the quarterbacks who started right off the bat, started week one of the rookie season. Then you have briefly benched quarterbacks who didn't start in week one as rookies, uh, but took over the starting role before the midway point of that season. Then you have long-term clipboard holders, that is quarterbacks who didn't make a start until the second half of the rookie season. And then you have role players. Those are quarterbacks who didn't start in week one as a rookie, uh, but were part of their offense's game plans um, right away. Um, maybe as, you know, runners, they were in special packages. They had a role right off the bat, but they weren't the full-time starter. And then lastly, you have stuck on the sideline. And that's obviously quarterbacks um, who didn't start a single game in their rookie season and were on the bench for the entirety of their rookie year. Um, and so within each category, Sherman determined how many quarterbacks made Pro Bowls, how many were, you know, starters without a Pro Bowl appearance, and how many were bust. Um, and, and he said in the article that he defined bust as quarterbacks who spent two or fewer seasons as a full-time starter after their rookie season. Um, and so let's go ahead and, and dive into what the numbers um, say about each of these categories of quarterbacks. So let's start off by looking at week one starters. Um, and there were 20 of these week one starters um, among first round picks from 2000 to 2020. Um, nine of them were pro bowlers. That's 45%. That's Carson Palmer, Matt Ryan, Matthew Stafford, Cam Newton, Andrew Luck, Robert Griffin III, Ryan Tannehill, Jameis Winston, Carson Wentz, and Kyler Murray. And then there were six sustained starters. That's David Carr, Joe Flacco, Mark Sanchez, Sam Bradford, Marcus Mariota, and Sam Darnold. And then you have three busts. That's 15%. And I don't know if I said, but 25% of the week one starters among the rookie quarterbacks, um, yeah, 25% of them were sustained starters. Um, and then uh, three of 20 were bust. That's 15%. Um, and those quarterbacks include Kyle Bowler, EJ Manuel, and Brandon Whedon. And then you have, um, a too early to tell at, at, at the time this article was written. That's one out of 25%. And that's Joe Burrow, who was drafted, I believe, the year prior to when this article was written. Um, and then he says that this is the most common option for rookie quarterbacks um, since 2000. Um, most most rookie quarterbacks are starting right away. Um, 
but we have seen some examples recently of, of quarterbacks, you know, or of teams, you know, developing their, their rookie quarterbacks in different ways. Um, there were a lot, there were some quarterbacks in recent memory um, who didn't start at all in their rookie year, um, like Patrick Mahomes. And then going back, there was Aaron Rodgers who sat behind Brett Favre. Um, but yeah. And then he says between 2017 and 2020, 17 quarterbacks were picked in the first round and only three, uh, Sam Darnold, Kyler Murray, and Joe Burrow, started in week one as rookies. So from 2017 to 2020, that's three, I think three years, maybe four, um, only, only three quarterbacks picked in the first round started week one of the rookie season. Um, now let's move on to the briefly benched, um, of this group, there were 19 quarterbacks, um, five of them were pro bowlers, that's 26.3%, and those quarterbacks included, uh, Ben Roethlisberger, Alex Smith, Deshaun Watson, Mitch Trubisky, and Josh Allen. And then you have five sustained starters, that's 21.1%, um, and that includes Joey Harrington, Byron Leftwich, Blake Bortles, Teddy Bridgewater, and Baker Mayfield. Then you have Bust, that's um, six Bust, um, which is 31.6%. You have Patrick Ramsey, Matt Leinart, Christian Ponder, Blaine Gabbert, Paxton Lynch, and Josh Rosen. And then you have three quarterbacks that are too early to tell at the time this article was written, and that's Daniel Jones, Tua Tungo-Vailoa, Tunga and Justin Herbert. Um, and Sherman in his article said that this has become the most common strategy among NFL teams with rookie quarterbacks. Um, according to him, most teams are, you know, um, waiting a few weeks to start their rookie quarterbacks. They're not starting them all right off the bat. They're letting them sit on the bench, learn from the, from the starter for a few weeks, and then they're letting them have a chance to start, um, um, and we've seen a lot of quarterbacks in recent memory take that route, like Justin Herbert, for example, um, who started off on the bench, and then um, a few weeks into the season, um, Tyron Taylor, who was the Chargers starting quarterback at, at the time, he had a punctured lung um, prior to a, a game. Um, the team doctor like was giving him a shot and punctured his lung, so Justin Herbert got the start. Um, wild situation then. That was crazy. Uh, but yeah, br- briefly benching a quarterback is the most common way for teams to develop their, their rookie quarterback. Um, or at least that's how it's been in recent memory. Now let's move on to the long-term clipboard holders. Among this group, um, which includes eight quarterbacks total, three of them were pro bowlers. That's Eli Manning, Jay Cutler, and Jared Goff. Two were sustained starters. That's 25%. Um, and I don't, I think I skip, skipped over this. Um, three of eight quarterbacks being pro bowlers. That's 30, 37.5%. Um, and then two of the eight quarterbacks were sustained starters. That's 25%. That's Jason Campbell and Josh Freeman. Three of the eight quarterbacks were bust. That's 37.5%. That includes Rex Grossman, Johnny Menzel, and Dwayne Haskins. Um, and Sherman said that of the five categories, this is probably the least successful. If you're a long-term clipboard holder, according to Sherman, um, your odds of succeeding are not that high. Um, which 
isn't too surprising if you're not starting right away, and if you're not start or if you're not starting quickly, um, or you know pretty early on in your rookie season, um, that that can be a signal that there's something wrong with you talent-wise, um, or maybe even off the field. Um, so that's not too surprising. Now we can move on to role players. And let me remind you that the role players were quarterbacks who didn't start right away, but did have a role within the offense, usually as runners um, or within some special offensive packages. Of this group, which included four quarterbacks total, three were pro bowlers, that's 75%, um, and that was Michael Vick, Vince Young, and Lamar Jackson. Um, and then one was a bust, and that, that's obviously 25%, and that was Tim Tebow. Um, obviously, this is a very small sample size, only four quarterbacks, so there's not much we can take away from this. Um, but yeah, we have seen some quarterbacks in the modern era be used as, you know, quote-unquote role players in their rookie season. Um, and a lot of these guys have had a lot of success and were pro bowlers. Though I will, I will say, once again, this is a very small sample size, so take that with a grain of salt. Um, now let's move on. Roger Sherman. Oh, actually, we do have one more group. I think this is the last group, and that's stuck on the sideline. These are quarterbacks who did not start at all their rookie season. Um, and this group included nine quarterbacks total. Um, three of these were pro bowlers. That's 33%. That includes Aaron Rodgers, Philip Rivers, and Patrick Mahomes. One was a sustained starter. That's 11%, and that was Chad Pennington. Um, four were bust, that's 44%. That includes J.P. Loesman, Brady Quinn, Jamarcus Russell, everyone's favorite bust, um, and then Jake Locker. And then lastly, um, there was one who's too early to tell, um, 11%, and that's Jordan Love. Um, and Sherman said that this, this is the strategy with the highest payoff and lowest failures. Um, he also said that no first-round quarterback spends his entire rookie season on the bench and turn, turns out normal. The nine players on this list have won more MVP awards, four, than the 20 who started in Week 1 as rookies. Rodgers and Mahomes are two of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game, and Rivers ranks fifth all-time in passing yards. That's really interesting to see that the quarterbacks who you know, were stuck on the sideline their rookie season, had the most success. That's really interesting, um, really cool to see. And according to Sherman, there were, there were I think, three major takeaways from this exercise. Um, first, um, the most successful strategy was, you know, weirdly using players or using rookie quarterbacks in small roles. Now, I will say that that was a small sample size, so it's hard to really make such a, a big claim. Um, but yeah, like three of the four quarterbacks who were used as role players during the rookie season from 2000 to 2020, um, you know, three of them ended up being pro bowlers. So that's interesting. Second, the second biggest takeaway was, um, you know, the performance of players who were week one starters, um, the long-term performance was kind of poor, um, considering, you know, that they were week one starters. Um, but Sherman does say that it's, they were, it wasn't poor in the way that you would expect. He said that critics of playing rookie quarterbacks too early imply that those players can be broken by early failures. 
Um, and, and he makes a joke here. He says, maybe Kyle Bowler would have turned into a star if he hadn't thrown three interceptions against the Chiefs in September of his rookie season. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and then he says, but many of the week one starters actually played well in their first go around. Um, so yeah, many, many of the week one starters did play well. Um, and I like that he mentions, um, this popular talking point that, you know, quarterbacks who play too early, um, can be, you know, broken or, you know, may have a hard time overcoming their early struggles. And that's possible. But I think guys like that, guys who aren't able to overcome their early struggles, you know, maybe that, maybe, you know, the way they're wired mentally would not allow them to succeed anyways, no matter when they started. That would probably be my argument against that. Um, but who knows? And then the last major takeaway uh, was that while it's true that a handful of players who sat for their entire rookie seasons went on to become stars, the benching a rookie blueprint isn't a reliable development strategy. And that makes sense. Like, if you're not playing as a rookie, that's not a good sign. Obviously, there are outliers like Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, um, like those guys are the biggest outliers, but usually if you're not playing as a rookie, that's a pretty big sign that there's something wrong with you, whether it be talent wise, you know, off the field issues, maybe, a, maybe something's wrong with you mentally, maybe, um, you just don't have the mental toughness to, to play quarterback at a high level. Um, obviously that's not, you know, gonna be for everyone. Not every quarterback is gonna fit that mold. Um, but usually if you're not playing as a rookie, that's not a good sign. Um, but yeah, so that's, I thought that study was really cool and really interesting. And those numbers were fascinating. Um, I think that the best strategy is starting, uh, quarterbacks early. Um, we see a lot of quarterbacks in that mold have, have success. Um, obviously some uh, and if not if you're not going to start your your rookie quarterback week one you should start them pretty early on in their in their rookie season um and guys in those two buckets do tend to have a lot of success um but yeah so those that's that's the conversation on rookie quarterback starting right away um and now we'll, we'll end off the podcast by talking by ranking the five best playmakers in the NBA. And before we get into that, I'm going to take a break and I will be back in just a second. All right, I'm back. Now let's close out this podcast episode by ranking the five best uh, playmakers in the NBA. So a few days ago, I wrote an article ranking or using numbers to rank the top five playmakers in the NBA. Um, I wrote this for my for the fan site site that I write for, Sir Charles, Sir Charles and um, It's not out yet. I'm not sure when it's coming out. But I wanted to talk about this on the podcast because I thought it was really interesting. So we'll start out at number five um, and, and then go up to number one. So with the fifth spot, this was really hard to pick because there were a lot of players that I considered. Um, I consider guys like Tyrese Halliburton. He's a guy that I re- that I gave a lot of consideration to for this spot. Um, he had an incredible playmaking season last year and... If you put him in your top five playmakers, 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that. I, I would, I, I would not push back at all. Um, he is definitely in that conversation, and leaving him out was really difficult. Um, I thought, I just thought the numbers for my, for the guy that I put in the fifth spot or in my fifth spot, I thought his numbers were stronger last year, and I do want to see Tyrese Halliburton um, kind of replicate his production a little bit uh, moving forward. But yeah. Halliburton, definitely worthy of consideration for this list. I also consider Darius Garland, um, a guy who in 2021, which was two years ago, not last season, but the year before, that year he was one of the better playmakers in the NBA. Um, Didn't have as good of a playmaking season last year, but still definitely worthy of consideration um, for this list. I also consider guys like LeBron James. LeBron James has had a few really strong playmaking seasons over the last couple of years. Um, his playmaking numbers were better than I than I expected, um, so I gave him consideration. And I also consider guys like Stephen Curry and Damian Lillard. Um, and I kind of forgot to, to talk about what I consider playmaking to me, and that's actually really important. For me, I consider playmaking to be a player's ability to create shots for their teammates. And players can do that in a variety of ways. Um, usually, players are able to do that through their scoring gravity or you know their, their shooting gravity. Um, if, if you're a really effective three-point shooter, you can draw the defense out that way. Um, and then once you create the advantage, you have to be able to, you know, you know, obviously see that you have created an advantage and make an accurate pass. So it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just a player's ability to make accurate passes. It, it's that, but also a player's ability to create advantages. Um, and so usually if you're, if you're a strong playmaker, in my opinion, you're likely also either a really good scorer, a really good shooter, or both. Um, and usually guy, you know, all the guys on this list are really good scorers on top of being really good passers. Um, so that got that out of the way. Um, so yeah, um. I think that that was important to point out uh, because a lot of uh, you, you you'll see that I consider or you'll hear that I considered Stephen Curry and Damian Lillard for this list, and some people might be like, "Well, why? Like those guys aren't elite passers." Um, but the reason why I consider those guys is because they are really high level creators uh, because they're both super good long distance shooters and just scores in general. And last year, um, Damian Lillard was one of the best shot creators in the league. Like, he created a ridiculous number of shots for his teammates um, because he had a phenomenal scoring season and he was ridiculous as a three-point shooter. So, um, yeah, I wanted to give Stephen Curry and Damian Lillard some love. Um, I, I, think, I think a lot of stat people... Um, or people who are into analytics will put Stephen Curry on their top five playmakers list. I did not because I just don't think he's a good enough passer to be on this list, but I think he is definitely deserving of consideration. He just didn't make my top five. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and get get started with, um, in my opinion, the fifth best playmaker in the NBA, and that's John Morant. So I gave the fifth spot to John Morant. 
Um, last season, Morant averaged around 26 points, 6 rebounds, and 8 assists per game on 55.7% career shooting. Um, obviously, he had some off-the-court issues, but I'm just talking about his on-court production. Um, he was extremely productive as a passer, recording an assist rate of 41.1%, um, which is really, really good. It ranked 6th in the league. And this was the first time that Morant had an assist rate of over 40% in a single season in his entire career. Last year was definitely a career year for him as a playmaker. And his assist numbers were really good, but his advanced playmaking numbers were even better. Um, he ranked 8th in pass, or not better, but they were also great. Um, he ranked 8th in passer rating, 7th in box creation, and 4th in playmaking talent. If you don't know what those stats are, passer rating is a stat that looks at a player's proficiency as a passer um, and ranks their passing ability on a scale of 1 to 10. And then box creation is an estimation of the number of player, or sorry, the number of shots a player creates for their teammates per 100 possessions. Um, and then playmaking talent is a metric from B-Ball Index. Um, and it uses all of their playmaking data to measure a play a, a player's ability to make plays, and it measures their playmaking talent. Um, and, and it includes a lot of advanced stats. Um, I would recommend you go do some research research on it um, to look up how it's calculated. But yeah, um, that's what those metrics are. And John Morant ranked in the top ten in all three of these metrics. Um, and yeah, this was one of the best playmaking seasons that we've seen in recent memory, um, according to playmaking talent, ranking 7th since 2020 in this metric. Um, John Morant has always been a really good passer going back to his, um, his days in college at Murray State, and that was no different this season. Um, and I think that this is going to continue because he has become a really good scorer and his scoring gravity is awesome. He's an elite finisher um, and his court vision is fantastic. And so I think um, because of what he did last season, um, he was the most deserving of the fifth spot on this list. And I think that he will just continue to get better as a playmaker moving forward. Now let's move on to my fourth spot. And the fourth best playmaker in the NBA, um, in my opinion, is James Harden. James Harden is not the same player that he was in Houston. Um, and I think everyone would agree with that. Uh, because 14 seasons in the NBA have just... It's taken a toll on his athleticism and his explosiveness. Um, he's not the athlete he used to be. But he is still super skilled. Um, and he is still the ultra-skilled offensive creator who dominated the NBA back um, when he was with the Houston Rockets in the late 2010s. Last season, Harden was really good, averaging around 21 points and 11 assists per game on 16.7% true shooting. Um, and he and Joel Embiid led the Philadelphia 76ers to a top-five offense in the entire league. Now, James Harden doesn't score at the rate that he did when he was on the Rockets. However, um, he is still as good of a passer as he's ever been, and his passing ability is top-notch. Last season, he had an assist rate of 43.3%, which ranked third in the NBA, 
That's ridiculous. Um, and he looked really, really good according to passer rating and box creation, ranking top five in both metrics, which is extremely impressive. Um, now, he wasn't quite as good according to B-Ball Index's playmaking talent metrics, ranking 11th. And that's a big reason why he was fourth and not higher is because of that. And he also hasn't had um, these elite peaks um, like, like the other, the, these elite playmaking peaks, like my top three players on this list. Um, that's another reason why, um, he ranked just fourth. Um, but he does a great job of generating high value assists, which are assists on threes, assists on layups and dunks, and assists, um, that lead to free throws, or I guess passes that lead to free throws. Um, he generates high value, high, how value, wow, I can't talk. He generates high value assists at a really high rate. Um, and yeah, he's also, um, been a pretty good passer for the last couple of years. Um, he's consistently been an elite passer. Now, he hasn't been a great passer in the playoffs. Um, his assist numbers fall off in the postseason. That could be because his usage decreases in the playoffs. Um, and he isn't, you know, being, he isn't being asked to be a scorer. Um, as much, and he doesn't have the ball in his hands in the playoffs as much anymore. Maybe that's why his assist numbers aren't that great in the postseason. Um, but yeah, that was another thing I considered when ranking him fourth. Now let's move on to number three. Um, and this might be a hot take to some people, but at number three, I have Trey Young. Last season was a rough year for Young. Um, he averaged 26 points, 3 rebounds, and 10 assists per game on 57.3% true shooting. And calling that a, a rough season um, it might sound crazy, but his numbers were worse than they have been before. His scoring efficiency was worse, um, and his impact metrics offensively uh, were not quite as good as they were the year before. Um <clears throat> And yeah, like his numbers, his counting stats weren't bad, but the more advanced numbers weren't quite as good as they have been in 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 the in his prior seasons. Um, and while his his performance last year was a bit disappointing, he was still really good as a passer. He ranked fourth in the league in assist rate with a mark of forty two point five percent, and his advanced playmaking metrics were incredible. Um, he ranked fifth in passer rating and first in box creation. He also ranked first in B-Ball Index's playmaking talent metric. Um, and I think, so I think you could argue that he was the best playmaker in the regular season last year. Now you might be wondering, if he was arguably the best playmaker in the league last year, why is he not higher? And the reason why, um, there's a few reasons why. First off, um, his playmaking numbers go down in the playoffs. Um, his assist rate in the regular season for his career is 44.1%, and that's awesome. But it dips down to 40.6% in the playoffs, and that's not bad, really. That's still a great mark, but the fact that his assist rate goes down that much is concerning. And the reason why is he's not as effective as a scorer in the playoffs, and I think his scoring gravity just isn't as good in the playoffs as it is in the regular season. Um, I think that's a big reason why his productivity as a passer goes down in the playoffs. 
And another reason why I had him ranked this low is because of his lack of portability. Now, if you don't know what portability is, portability um, is a player's ability to play in a variety of roles. And basically, you know, if you took a player from his role on, on his team now to another and put him on another team in a different role, how well would he succeed in that different role? If that player, if you think that player would be just as successful, they're probably high, highly portable. And usually players who are highly portable are really good shooters. Um, you know, great three-point shooters are always highly portable. Guys who can pass and defend. Those kind of players like Draymond Green are highly portable as well. Um, but players who are not portable um, or, or, you know, molds or one specific mold of player that isn't highly portable um, is ball-dominant creators. And Trey Young fits in that mold. Um, and he and he is probably he's at least one of the most ball dominant players in the entire NBA. Um, his usage rate is always extremely high, um, and he and he just does not play off the ball whatsoever. Um, there's another player on this list that fits that mold too, um, but the reason I had Trey Young ranked lower. Um, in regards to portability is because of his size. Um, and, and him being not portable at all as a smaller than average guard is a, is a huge issue for him, especially considering that he isn't a great defender. Um, and because, um, and that's just another issue that caused me to rank him third, despite the fact that you could argue that he has, that he has been the best playmaker during the regular season in like the last three seasons his playmaking in the regular season is just absolutely ridiculous now let's move on to num number two and that is Luka Doncic Luka Doncic is just an a wonderful playmaker and last year he had a criminally underrated season um, averaging around 32 points nine rebounds and eight assists per game on 60.9% true shooting, and the Dallas Mavericks had an underwhelming season. They missed the playoffs entirely, but it wasn't because of Luka Doncic, who was one of the best players in the league. Now, Luka Doncic has undeniably been one of the best offensive players in the NBA for the last couple of seasons, and his proficiency as a passer at his age is unreal. Um, and I think that, you know, at just 24 years old, he is already in the conversation for the best passer in the world. Last season, he had an assist rate of 42.3%, which ranked fifth in the league. Um, and this isn't new territory, as he's had an assist rate of at least 40% in each of the last four seasons. That is ridiculous production. Um, now, his assist numbers don't do him justice. Um, and I think that they undersell just how many shots he creates for his teammates. Last season, he ranked fourth in the league in box creation, and he has two of the top 10 seasons in this metric going back to 2020. And even this stat might be underselling his playmaking ability, um, as he, as his 2021 season ranks number, number one and V-Ball Index's playmaking metric going back to 2020. Now, what makes his production really impressive is that he gets better in the playoffs. 
His, his career assist rate is actually better in the postseason. And I think a big reason why is because his scoring average goes up in the playoffs and his scoring gravity um, is better in the postseason. Um, now, unfortunately, he is not portable. Um, he kind of fits with Trey Young in that ball-dominant creator mold where he's handling the ball a lot and he's not playing without the basketball very often. Um, and that hurts him a little bit. That's why he's number two on this list and not number one. Um, but his lack of portability is not as big of an issue as it is for Trey Young, mainly because Luka Doncic is a 6'8 forward. Like, he's just much bigger. He's a, a little bit better on defense than Trey Young. Um, so it's not as big of an issue, but it's still a big issue. And if you put him on a different team uh, where he had to play off the ball more, I think he would struggle, and I think he would be less productive as a playmaker. Now, let's unveil my number one playmaker in the NBA, my top-ranked playmaker in the league, and that is the GOAT, Nikola Jokic. So Nikola Jokic, in my opinion, is the best playmaker in the NBA at the moment. He had a dominant season last year. Um, he averaged around 25 points, 12 rebounds, and 10 assists per game on 70.1% true shooting as he led the Denver Nuggets to their first championship in franchise history. He was awesome during the regular season and the playoffs and cemented himself as the best player in the league. And his produ productivity as a passer was ridiculous last year. He ranked second in the league in assist rate with a mark of 46.6%. And that is incredible for a big man. Um, Jokic is actually the only center in NBA history to have an assist rate of at least 45% in a single season. That's awesome. Um, and there are like other advanced metrics that make him look like a, a great playmaker, like passer rating and box creation. Um, last season, Jokic ranked first in the league in passer rating, and he ranked sixth in box creation. Uh, meaning he was like remarkably efficient as a passer, um, and he was just phenomenal at creating advantages and generating open shots for his teammates. He also ranked second in B-Ball Index's playmaking talent metric, which is awesome. Um, and he's a really unique offensive player um, because not only is he a really strong passer, but he's also like an elite scorer, and he's really portable because he can shoot. He His usage rates aren't ever that high. Um, he doesn't dominate the basketball. He can play without the basketball. Um, and, and he's been one of the best playmakers in the league for the last couple of years. But last year, he was just ridiculous as a playmaker. And his playmaking numbers were crazy good. Um, but the reason why I rank him number one is because he's awesome in the playoffs. He's extremely portable in a way that other guys on this list aren't. Um, and I think that his productivity for his position is unmatched. I mean, he is by far the best passing big man in the NBA, and it's not close. Like, what he's able to, to do as a passer, uh, considering his position, is crazy. Guys his size just should not be this good and this skilled as a passer, but here we are. And Jokic, in my opinion, is the best playmaker in the NBA right now, and he is one of the best playmakers in NBA history. Without a doubt, he's ridiculous, um, and I think that he is, I, I feel very comfortable having him number one on my list. 
Well, that's all I have for today's podcast episode. I hope you all enjoyed. If you did, please leave this podcast a review if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or really wherever you get your podcast. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like this video and subscribe. That would really help me out. Um, but yeah, I hope you all enjoyed this podcast and I will see you all next time.